We couldn't live without our gut, but it's not a part of our bodies often talked about. But that's about to change as the number of those with chronic bowel disease worldwide skyrockets. In New Zealand alone, 10,000 people have gut disease, and that number is rising rapidly. Our health correspondent Karen Brown has been finding out more. We must warn you that this program includes terms and descriptions relevant to the digestion process. I started refusing to eat because it hurt so much. People started commenting me on how I, I, I was sort of really white as a ghost and how amazingly skinny I was. And we sort of just got it checked out by um, our GP, and he said, "Oh, doesn't look too good." I was walking down Willow Street one night, and then I got a thump in my stomach, and I I couldn't walk any further, and it was the most severe pain. You know, I'd be doubled over sometimes. Couldn't sit up straight. Couldn't stand straight. He used to just curl up on the sofa and lie for hours, just not moving. He thought at one stage that he was going to die because he didn't understand what was happening to him. Young people and some not so young talk about inflammatory bowel disease or IBD. That's mainly Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, lifelong chronic diseases of the autoimmune system due to inflammation in the intestine. They hit without warning, and for many, life is turned on its head. They said I needed to eat, otherwise they'd give me a nasal gastric tube. My dad went out and brought me a chicken panini, and it was the first thing I'd actually eaten for probably about three months. And that night, I spiked a temperature of I think nearly forty. And the next morning, my surgeon came in and said, "This is not an option anymore. This was a life and death situation." Ulcerative colitis is only ever in the large bowel, but Crohn's can occur anywhere from the mouth to the anus. Symptoms may be mild or severe: cramps, bleeding, diarrhoea, and worse. It targets the young largely, but it's not something they or anyone else wants to talk about. Wellington Hospital's clinical leader of gastroenterology, John Wyeth, says Crohn's used to be rare. But among the up to 18-year-olds he sees in the paediatric department, that's no longer the case. On average, every two weeks, I'm diagnosing another child with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, mainly Crohn's disease. So I think that puts it into a bit of a perspective that yes, it is common. It took a groundbreaking Canterbury study three years ago to show just how common IBD is here. Researchers and specialists from Christchurch Hospital and the Christchurch School of Medical and Health Sciences identified everyone in the region who's ever been diagnosed with IBD. Ninety-two percent agreed to join the study, led by gastroenterologists Richard Geary and Murray Barclay. Dr. Geary, we performed a census, if you like, but then on each of those people, we were also able to get consent. Um, for them to fill in a questionnaire, looking at environmental factors, we took blood samples to look for genetic factors, and also very closely look, went through their medical records to determine、um, patterns of drug and surgery that were, were required. So it's provided us with a very detailed、um, amount of data that allows us to、uh, to ask、uh, questions about treatment and、uh, also causes of inflammatory bowel disease. What did they find? We'd been led to believe from previous publications in the 1980s that IBD was really quite Quite unusual in New Zealand, but that wasn't our experience sitting in clinic and seeing these patients coming by us. So what we found、um, was that firstly the incidence of Crohn's disease—that's、so、the number of new patients diagnosed in a given year—was actually the highest ever described anywhere in the world. I'm not sure that that's necessarily specific to New Zealand or Canterbury. It probably reflects the fact that we're the most up-to-date study of its sort and most exhaustive and thorough study. 
The research has underscored the fact that you're more likely to get IBD if it's in the family. Science is, in fact, making bigger inroads in relation to Crohn's than it is for any other disease in terms of pinpointing the genes that are linked to it. Christchurch genetics expert Rebecca Roberts. If you ask me 10 years ago, we only knew about one gene that was confirmed as a risk factor for Crohn's disease. Over the last 18 months to two years, we now have over 30 genes that have been demonstrated to alter or increase an individual's risk of developing Crohn's disease. So our knowledge is increasing, but we still have a very long way to go. In many cases, although we have identified genes that alter an individual's chance of developing these diseases, we don't know exactly what particular sites of variation in a gene are causing or altering these um, risk profiles, if you will. Dr Richard Geary. What we know is that there are genes which produce proteins in our body and that mutations in those genes or alterations in those genes means that the proteins don't work as well. Now the areas in the body that have been affected by genes that are affected in Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease uh, are those that are involved in the immune system. So the immune system is involved in producing inflammation in a normal situation. It may well be that in people with Crohn's disease, these mutations cause unfettered inflammation that just continues when it should be turned off. They're also involved in recognising bacteria that live in our gut. So our gut is absolutely jam-packed full of bacteria. In fact, there are more bugs in our, in our gut than there are cells in our entire body. And the ability of our immune system to recognise those bugs is also very important. But it's not just about genes. They're the gun, but not the trigger. Genes change over thousands of years, so that the genes that we had now are essentially similar to the genes that we had 100 years ago, but there's been a, a real explosion of, of inflammatory bowel disease incidents in the Western world. Clearly the genes haven't changed, so it must be something in the environment that is causing this. One of the best examples we have for environmental factors that may play a role in, in causing inflammatory bowel disease is smoking, which we know is associated with an increased risk of developing Crohn's disease. And also stopping smoking uh, is often associated with going on to develop ulcerative colitis, so smoking may play a role. Smoking's one thing that's in the spotlight, but it's more complex. Breastfeeding helps protect people, but only if it's for three months or more. Other potential factors highlighted in the Canterbury study include urban living, having had your appendix or your tonsils out, being on the pill. Growing up with a vegetable garden will halve your risk. It's not clear whether that's to do with the veggies or the bacteria in the dirt, but what is certain is that IBD peaks between the ages of 15 and 35. There's a second peak later in life. Dr Geary. It makes you wonder whether the background genes express themselves then with the environment and then perhaps people who have got less genetic background or predisposition to getting these diseases may develop it later in life with the second peak that we see around the age of 50. It's hard to be sure, but certainly some of our work that we've done suggests that those who are diagnosed early in life tend to be those who are more likely to have genes that predispose to the diagnosis. As you can hear various suction noises. That's the scopes being cleaned next door. And we're just about to bring the patient through on the trolley into the procedure room. Wellington Hospital's John Wyeth is watching preparations for a routine colonoscopy. He says IBD is likely to be as common throughout the country as in Canterbury. Unfortunately, most of these people are young. What I mean by young, usually in their teenage years. This is a very important stage of life. You know, this is when you know, these people are going through their schooling, they're developing social networks, 
they're going through puberty and, and growth uh, and they're developing a body image and if they are having a disease affecting that it can be devastating. Patients come to him with abdominal pain, tiredness, diarrhea, weight loss and blood in their stools. He says the latter should always be an alert for any parent. Most likely it is something simple and benign but anyone who sees blood should let the doctor know because it could be cancer. Diagnosis is mainly by a colonoscopy, a less than pleasant procedure whereby patients take a special formula to clear out their bowel and have a long tube inserted into their rectum under sedation. Doctors study the lower gut on a screen and take samples as they guide the tube through the colon. And a good job with the bowel prep, nice and clear. This is normal bowel, this is the very lowest end of the bowel, this is called the, the rectum, and we're just going into the, to the sigmoid colon now, which is a, a slightly corkscrew shape of the bowel, so we're sort of having to roll the scope around a bit to, to get through this. Wellington gastroenterologist Rhys Cameron is skilled at colonoscopies and says the risks are minimal. Drugs are the usual prescription once IBD is confirmed and patients may be on them for life. Exactly what drug or drugs depends on the severity of the disease, but the steroid prednisone is common because it's effective. Christchurch's Murray Barclay heads the Society of Gastroenterologists and is a medicines expert. The trouble also that has lots of side effects and anyone who's been on any courses of prednisone for any length of time will recognise this. Things like uh, a fullness in the face, a red face, a different fat distribution in the body, thinning of the bones, a higher chance of vascular disease, uh, lots of different side effects which patients recognise very quickly or if they've been on the drug for a long time will recognise them over the long term. So prednisone is a drug that we use in short bursts when we absolutely have to and we try to avoid it otherwise. Next up are what's known as the five aminosalicylic acid drugs, sulfasalazine, pentasa and acicol, which come in tablets that are taken in large doses, disintegrate and line the bowel to fight the inflammation. Many patients need more. That's where the mainstay immunomodulator drugs, azathioprine, 6-mecaptopurin and methotrexate come in. They're safe, effective, state-funded and inexpensive. But it's not plain sailing as Wellington Crohn's patient Brian Paul found out when he took azathioprine. I was about one of 30% of people who can't tolerate that drug and um, ended up in coronary care. It's just nausea and uh, you just simply have to go off the drug. Your body is just telling you that uh, it is just not a drug that you can, you can take anymore. Associate Professor Murray Barclay says azathioprine has no effect either way for a further 20% of patients. For those who can take it, most need to be on it for months to settle their IBD, but they could be on it for a great deal longer. We're using these drugs for longer and longer periods of time because we just know from the information we've had back from trials that if you stop these drugs after two, three, four, even maybe five years, there's quite a high likelihood of the disease coming back again. And if the disease does come back, it can be much harder to control the second time around. Which is what happened to another Wellington Crohn's patient, 23-year-old Sonia Parkinson. This is our um, main nursery room where um, our, babies, our little babies spend most of the day. Sonia works and, in um, early childcare. She says tummy cramps, diarrhoea and bleeding that began at the age of 17 had her on many different drugs, including azathioprine, which made her vomit lack of energy, I was getting ulcers and all sorts of other things that were happening. I took myself off and I was off 
um, all medication for about six months until I moved um, from Palmerston to Wellington. Moved to live in with um, my partner and starting a job, which was quite a busy time. Um, I got really, really sick again. Sonia tried one of the last lines of defence in the medicine cabinet for IBD, drugs called biologics. Infliximab, or Remicade, works by targeting inflammation. It's given by infusion in hospital. Adalimumab, or Humira, is similar, but has the advantage of being able to be given more easily in the community with a skin injection. It's also 20% cheaper than Infliximab. Neither helped Sonia, however. It was too little too late. The rest of my bowel was completely destroyed. There was nothing really there. It was just all the lining had gone and basically all the food and everything that I was eating was passing through near next to the muscle of my stomach. It was incredibly painful in that situation. I think, like again, it was a life and death situation. I didn't really have the decision. I went into surgery. They removed the rest of my large bowel and gave me um, permanently ostomy. The small bowel is brought to the surface of um, the stomach and so basically everything that you eat is passed through there into a bag. The surgery has allowed Sonia to move on. It is, it really is the end of the pain and I can get my life back but it's not, obviously it's not the life that I knew. Um, but to be able to, to weigh up the options of to be able to live healthy and enjoy life and get back to work and do the things that I want to do it definitely outweighs living or even close to not living really. Surgeon Frank Frizzell is removing a bit of colon and small bowel in a patient at Christchurch Hospital. It's an operation that's similar to those done for Crohn's patients to remove part of a damaged bowel. He says most people with IBD don't need surgery, but it can deal with some of the uglier aspects, abscesses, fissures or sores in the lining of the anal canal and what's known as fistulas or abnormal connections between bits of bowel. If they have ulcerative colitis, the most common operation now we do is remove the whole of the colon and rectum and join the small bowel to the anus with a pouch reconstruction and diverting the stool away while that heals with a thing called an ileostomy. Now that is subsequently closed when the patient's through that. With Crohn's, which can be far more extensive, it depends on what the specific problem is. You can't cure Crohn's disease by surgery, but you can fix the problems the patient has at the present time. And so when they've got stretching or fistulas, you can fix that. If they have bad perianal disease and are incontinent and leaking feces everywhere and just socially isolated as a result, then the rectum can be removed and they can have a colostomy. So you can improve their quality of life considerably. But these days with the combination of immunomodulating therapy or drug therapy and surgery, most patients can be moved to where they are well and can have good quality of life and, and participate in, the, in normal activities. Professor Frizzell says most colon and small bowel surgeries elective or non-urgent, so patients must wait to be seen in the public system where surgeons are invariably busy with bowel cancer. He says they do all they can to fit young people in to minimise the disruption for them, but how patients cope generally varies. 
some patients are fine and they have very minor problems with it and are not too bothered by by their disease. They manage to have a good quality of life and they their disease is well controlled. Other patients, it's a flipping disaster for them. Their whole life is devastated by this disease. They have very active disease and the medical therapy doesn't work and sometimes the surgical therapy can be quite complicated and difficult and they can have a really bad time with that as well. We're in Ward 30. Um, I work for the casual pool, so I've been sent here um, to fill in for the day. Otherwise, I normally work in the medical assessment unit. Jess Barr's a nurse at busy Christchurch Hospital, well able to look back after heavy-duty surgery eight years ago, which meant having an ileostomy, which was later reversed. I was 16, and to have a bag and to be scarred during puberty was... I mean, that was horrible, and there was a chance that they weren't going to be able to reverse the bag, and I I don't know mentally what that would have done for me. So to have it reversed gave me back my life, basically. Determining whether it's Crohn's or colitis isn't always easy. Jess believes it's colitis, and it came on quickly. Socially it was quite hard because I couldn't go out and do certain things my friends were doing and when I was at school everything was an effort. I was so tired all the time and I, you know, lunchtime just meant me lying in the sun just trying to conserve energy and, and even going home and, and not being able to eat foods and your parents getting upset and trying to you know, encourage you so much to eat. Catherine Payne was 47 when she developed severe Crohn's last year. Her heart goes out to people like Jess and Sonia. Can you imagine a young one? I mean, they're having boyfriends. and I mean, I have a husband that, that I feel completely comfortable with. Because of the nature of this disease, it's not something that you're going to talk much about your bowels and diarrhoea and not something you really want to share with your friends, especially as a teenager. There's that shame attached. Even if you've had an um, operation, you've got a bag attached at that age. I mean, I just feel sorry for them, really. No one can say how many people are on infliximab or adalimumab. Use of these drugs for IBD is controlled by district health boards rather than the drug buying agency Pharmac under their own separate budget for hospital drugs. All large hospitals use them for IBD, but at least one surgeon's told me that in his region the $30,000 annual price tag per patient means use of infliximab, for example, is restricted. Gastroenterologist Dr Richard Geary backs that. So if you manage in your district health ward where one person with Crohn's disease lives uh, happier for their gastroenterologist to prescribe those drugs, that's fantastic. But if you live in the next DHB where the managers aren't so keen and there are examples of very different use of these drugs around the country, then you, you're just unlucky really and you won't get access to those drugs. And I think that's criminal really. I think that really there's a, a very good argument that there needs to be a national policy on the use of these medications. The DHB's spokesman on drugs, Murray Giorgio, says it appears access to infliximab does vary because of choices made by senior clinicians mainly, based on cost and other factors. He says that can mean different drugs in the formulary or the drug schedule for different hospitals. If we've got 21 district health boards, that means that we've probably got 21 different formularies which means we've probably got 21 different situations, which this is just but one of them. Mr Giorgio concedes that's not ideal, and work about to be undertaken by Pharmac on a standard list of drugs that should be available in all hospitals may improve that situation. Adalimumab, or Humira, is already available in the community for rheumatoid arthritis, and Pharmac's about to decide whether to fund it on that basis also for Crohn's. 
DHBs are nervously eyeing the long-term cost of many similar top-end drugs. Wellington specialist John Wyeth says use of infliximab and adalimumab is rising fast. We used to only use it for what's called induction of remission. And that is when a patient comes in with their disease flaring up. And so we would give them these expensive drugs to bring them, bring the disease under control. There's a lot of evidence now and usual practice overseas is that once you have this patient in remission, you should continue with treatment to keep them in remission. Wider access, if it's realised, can't come soon enough for Stephen Barry. He's been on prednisone for 11 years, having refused surgery and failed to qualify for infliximab. But now, at the end of his tether, he's opted for an operation. He has the puffy features associated with sustained use of prednisone, which he hates. It worries me very much if that means that I have to have the operation they want me to have. I'm morally saying that, well, I'm giving up, I'm giving in. If that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. Just get me off the steroids, make the pain of the disease go away. But more than drugs, it's diet that really preoccupies those with the disease. Specialists agree diet plays a role, but are careful about what they say because of a lack of evidence. Associate Professor Murray Barclay. There is no doubt that some people will respond to changes in their diet that they will notice for themselves, like they might pick up that for them, exclusion of certain things like gluten-containing products is one one example, will help with their symptoms. The, the trouble is that that's not the same for everyone. So all, all you can really say is you might like to try excluding various things in the diet and see if you get benefit from that, but there is no real universal advice that we can give to everyone with inflammatory bowel disease to say, if you avoid this particular type of food, you will do better. There's another really important thing here too is that we're starting to believe that inflammatory bowel disease is set up very early in life and maybe it's what you eat as a young baby or a, or a toddler or a, a young child is what sets you up for whether or not you have inflammatory bowel disease later in life. Once you get inflammatory bowel disease, changing your diet at that stage may make no difference because the disease is already there. Richard Geary. What we do know though is that diet can um, cause a lot of symptoms related to IBS or irritable bowel syndrome which is a different condition with a very similar uh, name unfortunately uh, and those symptoms are often ones of bloating, loose bowel motions, uh, abdominal discomfort but tend to be less severe than with IBD. But IBS and IBD frequently go together so we know that some foods um, may trigger IBS and in that situation they may be helpful in people who have got IBD as well. What foods might be triggers? Professor Lynn Ferguson heads nutrition studies at Auckland University and directs Nutrigenomics New Zealand, a multidisciplinary group probing the link between foods, genes and Crohn's. She believes there's an overlap with celiac disease, which is an inflammatory condition caused by intolerance to the food protein gluten. She says eliminating gluten, found mostly in wheat, may help some. So might peeling fruits, avoiding mushrooms and brassicas, and bolstering bacteria in the gut through probiotics. There's still probably a year or two's work to do in, in really moving the statistics and getting to a position where we can tell people, uh, if you go and get yourself genotyped, then we can make definitive dietary 
pronouncements for you, but more importantly, if you're in a family that's got a high incidence of Crohn's disease, that we might be able to genotype your children and say, okay, you've got a susceptibility gene, doesn't mean you're going to get the disease, but what we'd strongly recommend is that you avoid this group of, of items in the diet, and perhaps you preferentially enhance your diet in other sorts of dietary items. Professor Ferguson's team has surveyed Aucklanders and been shocked at the findings, including that many patients have been told they are anorexic and should see a psychiatrist. I think it is a, a very isolating disease and, and the only thing I can really recommend is, is get expert nutritional advice. Get, um, you know, get yourself linked with, it, with an expert gastroenterologist. There are good ways of, of controlling this and, and my um, strong advice would be to look at your own diet, uh, listen to what your body's saying. Joe, whose 13-year-old son Todd has Crohn's, took that advice. Todd's taking Pentassa, they refuse to accept as a thioprine, and he's also on a gluten and dairy-free diet with supplements. He feels much better now. The first step we took was very much to just cut out absolutely everything with additives, artificial additives, colourings, all those kind of things. Todd likes hot dogs, for example, well, the phosphates and nitrates and, and those kind of things in the likes of a hot dog. Um, I mean, in his terminology, it's like putting fuel on a fire for someone who's got um, an irritable bowel. So we've gone back to what he calls the caveman diet. Todd's only supposed to eat things that he can pull out of the garden or chase around the paddock. Prominent family doctor Jonathan Fox knows about the impact of IBD, which his own son has. There's two sides to all these things. There's the physical side, and getting the physical symptoms under control isn't too bad. But for anybody who, at a young age, just entering adulthood, is suddenly told they've got a long-term medical condition that may or may not have complications down the line, it's more the psychological adjustment that takes time for people, whether they've got Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, or any other long-term condition. And that's probably the biggest thing for anybody to have to learn to live with the way they are now as opposed to the way they thought they were three months ago. Canterbury Crohn's patient and local support group leader Claire Walsfold also knows the very real mental side to the disease. It never goes away. It's going to be part of my life forever. I've, I've had to accept that. It's never out of my mind. I know that the symptoms can reoccur at any time on any day, so I have to always be aware of looking after myself I am going to have bad days and I'm going to have to deal with those symptoms. Brian Paul founded a local support group in Wellington so others could be spared his experience of not meeting one other person with IBD until he'd had it for almost 40 years. It doesn't have that, that profile that arthritis has. A lot more people in New Zealand suffer arthritis and that's a very nasty disease. But equally Crohn's colitis has the same impact on people. He says it's an epidemic and what's needed is better access to top drugs and a fees waiver for IBD patients who face paying $1,000 a year in the capital for any privately ordered blood tests. Claire Worsfold wants an 0800 number and other support. When someone's ill or a family member can call when they just don't know what to do and, and the next doctor's appointment at the hospital is, is so far away, respite care. A young person can go into respite care and be looked after professionally and give the family a break. Those who have or work with IBD know that it takes courage to get through. Wellingtonian Barbara Murray was diagnosed with severe Crohn's almost 30 years ago. 
I remember sitting down with my specialist when I was about 19 and I remember asking, you know, what happens now? You know, um, how long am I going to live? You know, am I going to be able to have children? What happens now? And he honestly didn't know. He said, we'll just take it each day as it comes. And since then, I've, um, I was at varsity at the time, so I finished my degree. I've gone on to become a chartered accountant. I've got three children. Um, I've travelled overseas. I'm going to run the half marathon on Sunday. I've managed to do lots and lots of sorts of things, and I don't think it's really held me back. That programme was written and presented by Karen Brown. For help to find a support group for those with bowel disease, you can contact your local Citizens Support Bureau.